welcome to Little City Big Sound. I'm your host, David Pender Lofgren. I want to start by thanking you for tuning in. Whether you've listened to all of the episodes so far or are just finding us, it means a lot that you've decided to spend an hour of your time getting to know the folks that make up our musical community. When Andy and I started this project, we set out to cover as much of the music scene in Bellingham as possible. We knew that this, of course, would be a challenge. We, like you, have our own tastes and preferences when it comes to what types of music we like to listen to or play. And we talked about how important and how difficult it would be to work to cover the corners of our community that we don't spend a lot of time in. So far, we've brought you interviews with a new bar owner, a seasoned local music writer and publisher, a festival director, and musicians who play jazz, folk, and traditional music. But rest assured, our goal remains the same, which is why I'm so excited for this month's guest. Holly Huffman has been an integral part of Bellingham's music scene since moving here to study sociology at Western Washington University in the early aughts. She's played bass in several Bellingham bands, including her current gig with heavy rockers Dryland. In 2011, she opened The Shakedown with her business partner Marty Watson, and five years later, they expanded the business to include The Racket, a bar with a loft full of pinball machines located next door. In addition to playing in and booking bands, Holly spent years as a live music photographer and currently serves as the chair of the board of directors at the local arts and music nonprofit Makeshift. In short, Holly Huffman is one of those people that has worked tirelessly to make our music community, indeed, our community as a whole, as vibrant and diverse as possible. Here's our conversation. Holly Huffman, welcome. Thank you. Uh, in Bellingham, you're best known as the co-owner of The Shakedown and uh, The Racket, so the music venue on State Street, and it's adjoining Pinball Bar. Uh, but you're also a musician. You play bass in Dryland. Um, you're a music photographer. I'd like to try and touch on all of these things, um, but can we start with Holly, the musician? Sure. Tell me about how you became a musician. All right. Well, um, I've played bass guitar since I was a sophomore in high school, uh, on and off. And um, my first band in Bellingham was with uh, was called Shiner and was with um, three other ladies, Dominique, Heron, um, Danielle, Morgan, and uh, Jen Westover. And uh, we figured out that there was another band already called Shiner, so we changed the name. But uh, that went through a couple couple different versions of kind of the same band. And then I was in uh, a band called Black Sparks, a band called Whammies. That ended in about 2006. And then I had a long break to open up the music venue. And finally, about four years ago, was invited to play in Dryland by Clapper, who started the band. Uh, and that's, that's going great. We just uh, we just finished an album, so it should be released in the next two months, maybe. So uh, it sounds like you played in a bunch of bands in the Bellingham area. You grew up in Olympia, right? Yes. So you started playing bass there? I did. I started playing bass there and, and took some private lessons and then... Um, moved to Colorado, a little tiny town, and didn't really play a lot. Picked it up every once in a while, but it was mostly just teaching myself. And then graduated high school, came back to Bellingham, came to Bellingham to go to, to school at Western, and I was on the verge of selling my bass because I didn't play it very much. Uh, and I, I was probably 19, 20. Worked at a place called Alpha Tech Computers, with a bunch of rock stars, uh, including Dave Kreider, Jeff Gray, Brett Cole. Um, so that's uh, Dave Kreider of Estrus Records. Mm-hmm. Brent Cole, a former uh, interviewee on this program. Uh, What's Up Magazine founder. And who's the third one? Jeff Gray. Jeff Gray was in the Foot Stompin' Trio, for those who remember okay. that band. Um, and I think I asked one of them, I asked... It was either, I think I asked Jeff how I should sell my bass, and I think he said, well, why don't you just play it? I was like, oh, well, I'd need a band. 
Um, and I guess with his encouragement and probably Brent's encouragement too, and just, you know, seeing, being around people who played a lot of music, I decided to give it another shot. So I didn't sell it. And I still, I still play the same bass that I bought when I was a sophomore in high school. Like the same, the same actual instrument? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it says about you that you play the same bass that you, as you know, it's the same bass that you bought in high school? It's a great bass. Never goes out of tune. Sounds great. I don't know. It says, it says more about the bass than about you. I think so, yeah. Currently you're playing in uh, Dryland, and you said you guys just recorded an album? What's, what's the story there? Yeah, it's a, it's a four-song album, EP, um, which seems to kind of be the way that a lot of bands are going these days rather than a, a full length. And we recorded down in Seattle with Matt Bayless, who uh, he's – He's um, produced and recorded a lot of albums that we really like um, from a lot of heavy bands like Isis and Macedon, Botch. His most, maybe his best-selling, the best-selling album that he's worked on is um, Macedon's Blood Mountain. So we did a session with him and it went really great. Songs sound great. They just got mastered yesterday and... We hope to release that over the next month or two, probably. So Matt Bayless was was engineering and producing the album, is that right? Yes. What was it like working with a producer? We had been warned that Matt was uh, a direct person, which turns out I really liked. I think that he he was able to get the sound that we were looking for in a really efficient way and um, made an album much more uh, I think much much more perfect and like us than we could have imagined. What do you mean like you? He was able to get this he was really able to get get the essence of our sound, I think quickly get get to it and wasn't. He was great at not settling on, okay, he made sure that everything was great, I guess. You shared the tracks <clears throat> the tracks from the EP with me. Uh, they sound incredible. Some of those songs are incredibly complicated. I mean, there's like timing changes, tempo changes, like really crazy. You guys will go from like these, you know, stabs to all of a sudden like a totally different feel. How, do you record all of that straight through, or do you do that like in chunks? Well, drums and uh, drums and bass were recorded straight through. I just, of course, drums have to be perfect. There's not a lot of punching in and editing on that that can be done. But yeah, there was a little bit. There was a little bit of over, overdubbing for me. There were points where where Matt would be like, "No, nope, this part's not good enough," and I could not tell what he was talking about. I just, uh, okay, Matt, I'll play it again. Um, do you like recording? Um, I think recording isn't my favorite part of being in a band, but I do enjoy recording because of the people that I get to do it with. Um, everybody's professional and it's fun and it's not too serious, but it's also a job. We're all very supportive of each other and want to create something that we're proud of. So that part's fun. Sitting around a recording studio? Eh, not so much. Not a huge fan of listening to the same song over and over and over. Totally. Yeah. It can be so hard to have, like, to feel like you're even listening anymore after enough yeah. takes. At some point you just don't ever want to hear that song again. So what's what does the process look like before you're actually in the recording studio? Are these tunes that you guys have been playing for a long time and then decided to just now record? Or is it stuff that you sort of say, we've got a new batch, we're going to practice the hell out of it, and then we're going to put it, put it down? Yeah, I think, well, we had these four songs for a varying length of time for each song. Um, 
the, you know, the oldest son was maybe a year, year and a half old. And then the newest was probably just a couple months old. And we practiced, we tried practicing twice a week up, up until recording. Um, yeah, we, we tried to be as, as well practiced as we possibly could. We were also, for this album, we had a new drummer. Uh, we had Noah Burns come in to record this album. And he's amazing and a pro and brilliant. And so it, I think it was probably a month. No, I don't even think it was a month. Maybe two weeks he had to learn all of our songs. Whoa. Those parts are incredibly complicated, too. He's incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, he is probably moving back to Alaska for a seasonal job, so we don't get to keep him. So you're but looking for a drummer? We have found a drummer. You have? Yeah. Can you tell me who it is? Um, I don't think I can yet. I'll say that it's um, it's somebody who has been in a local band that has a significant influence on Dryland, though. So that's awesome. pretty exciting. Do you guys have, uh, now that you've recorded this EP, do you have plans to, like, tour it? Or are you going to play a release show in town? Or what's... I'm sure, like? yeah, we'll we'll probably play a release show. Um, I think we, we've put a lot of effort into this album and would really like to work to see that it fulfills its potential as far as, you know, getting it out to people and touring. And I, I have very little experience with finding labels or anything like that, but um, I feel like this album's good enough that we might get some attention for it. So we're going to try, see what, see what happens. Awesome. Okay. Uh, now I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, you as a live music photographer. Mm-hmm. So as, as I understand it, uh, you were taking photos before you were in Dryland, before the shakedown or any of that stuff, like that was sort of one of your initial entry points into the Bellingham music scene. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So in my early twenties, I was a big live music fan. Went to lots, of, lots and lots of shows. Um, it's kind of what I did. Um, and at some point, I started bringing a camera with me. And, you know, I think I felt that same pull that lots of people feel. Uh, clearly, everybody's pulling out their cell phones now to take pictures at shows. Um, there was just something about I wanted, you know, I had this pull to capture what, what I was experiencing. And I also had some, had a couple people that were doing the same thing at that time. And... Um, were examples, um, Gunther, Gunther Jose Frank and Chris Fuller were both taking photos. Um, and I would watch them and my, um, my uncle's who was a photographer gifted me a uh, camera, a more professional camera than what I had. And I just really enjoyed it and probably had a good solid five years of photographing shows and eventually got pretty good at it towards the end and uh I enjoyed spending my time doing that it's a lot of time that's the thing about photography is it it's a, a big time commitment and then once once I focused on the, the music venue there was no more time for photography unfortunately so did bringing a camera to the show change the way that you saw the show or like the way that you participated in the in the show Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I think it. I was a well, I was a photographer that liked jumping up on stage and shoving my way around, and I got I got that from Gunther because that's how Gunther did it. So you know, I watched how he did things, and he was he was very in your face with his camera and his flash, which many musicians fondly remember. <laughs> And so, you know, I kind of watched him, and, and at that point, too, we had a lot of bands that were really higher energy as well. So 
you know, the crowd would be really high energy. The bands were really high energy. There's just a lot going on. And somebody jumping on stage with a camera wasn't weird or a distraction necessarily. It was kind of part of the show. And so, yeah, inter- interacting in that way was really fun. It, it, um, it feels like that's probably going to also be a nice way to connect with the musicians that you're admiring in a way that isn't just like purely as a listening fan. Yeah. Is that like, did it give you a, a window into sort of being like, hey, I just took a bunch of photos of your show? Yeah, definitely. And it felt like it was a way to connect for sure with musicians. And I think I became friends with a lot of musicians because of that. Um, not just in Bellingham, but uh, touring bands as well. I think a lot of connections that I still had were made when I did photography. I still have. And um, yeah, and it was also a way, I think, to, I think I wanted to be more than just a an audience member. And I wanted to contribute some way to the music scene. And kind of being a documentarian was one way that I could do that. And I, you know, I because I would look at, at like maybe some of Chris Fuller's old photos and 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 think, wow, I'm so glad somebody was there to take that picture because it's amazing. That was an amazing moment that you know we got to experience. And um, there's a great picture of Fuller's where there's a guy from a band, I think it was a band called The Wednesdays, not Bellingham's The Wednesdays, different Wednesdays. Um, I think he was hanging, hanging by his knees from one of the mains at the Three B. You know, and pictures like that just was so grateful somebody was was there to to capture that and and I felt like there should be there could be more of that there was room for more of that and that was a way I could contribute to what was happening are there specific photos that you've taken that you think like that's the one like that's the thing I'm trying to do <sighs> yeah I think my favorite photos are probably of the band Black Eyes and Neckties they were incredibly fun to take photos of because everybody in the band was always doing something unique. You know, there's only so many shots of a guy playing a guitar singing into a microphone that you can take before it gets real boring. So there was a show in Seattle at the Comet where Brenda was wearing uh, angel wings and she had an apple. And she leaned over and put her elbows on her... um, keyboard and took a bite of the apple and I think with just the lighting and the 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 composition everything of the shot it was just a, one of my very favorite photos and you know just there's a great photo that I took of Rich the bass player for Black Eyes and Neckties sitting on Brad who's laying on his back on the stage um, that one's up at the at the shakedown yeah, pretty much every photo that I don't know that I really love was a band doing something unique and interesting, and I, the lighting happened to be right when I pushed the button. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes sense. I mean, it feels like that's uh, having those like unique moments. That's the stuff that's so fleeting when you're at a show. When you're like, I can't believe this is happening and I can't believe I'm here for this happening. But then it just like disappears to time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, uh, can, can I like link to some of those photos from our website? Yeah, totally. So cool. Uh, you said before that you got into photography to try and, quote, save the energy between the band and the crowd. And that part of starting the shakedown was that you wanted to be able to create a place where, you know, people could have these amazing experiences like you had in your 20s. Do you remember the first time you had that realization that, like, you could could be a part of creating more of these moments for people? I think it it really happened... Uh, when I decided I didn't want to have a desk job anymore. I mean, having a desk job where I worked nine to six weekdays was great for being able to go to shows, um, but I I didn't want that lifestyle. And 
They say do what you love if you can for your profession. So I loved going to shows and being at a live show, being in the audience at a live show made me happier than anything else I did. So, yeah, I, I was like, well, how can I how can I incorporate that into a profession? And, yeah, I, I guess I, I came to the realization, like, yeah, I can I could do something to help create that experience for other people that I enjoy so much. That's when I kind of started pursuing the idea of owning a venue. Tell me about that. How did, how did that happen? Well, uh, like I said, after, after deciding have, having a desk job wasn't what I wanted to do, the, uh, a venue called The Nightlight was closing for the second time, second or third time, and somebody mentioned, you should take that spot over. You'd be great at it. And so I started actually looking into taking that spot over and what that would mean. And I had no experience in owning a business, no experience in even working in a bar. So I went through a pretty rigorous period of studying what, what it would take to open a business. And um, That's different than just hanging out at a bar for a long time, right? It is. Though, I, you know, I must say being a customer at a bar also is very informative. So it's, you know, like I did have at least a little bit of an experience in what the environment is like. You know, of course, that's nothing compared to actually standing behind a bar or or actually overseeing everything. So I got pretty far into the process of actually um, potentially taking over the nightlight space, you know, which included negotiating with the landlord and and talking to the the, the owner of the nightlight business. Um, and I'm very glad I did not pursue that in the end. I don't think I could have been very successful at keeping a venue that large open, honestly. And it wasn't really, it wasn't really what at the heart, at the heart of what I wanted to do would not have worked in that space. It was just too big. I like the fact that I can have a show that only has 30 people at it and still stay open. <laughs> Whereas a space that big, you have to, you have to really pack it out regularly um, in order to just pay the bills. So just to clarify, the, the nightlight uh, was where the underground is now. Correct. On Chestnut Street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a big space. It's a big space. It's, it's a lovely space, but um, yeah, it's really big. So knowing what I know now, I don't even know if I could make that space successful as a music venue. Um, as a nightclub, that's probably one of the few ways you could actually pay the, pay the overhead on that space. Um, so, yeah, so that, that space didn't work out. And soon after that, the space where the shakedown is now became available because the, uh, the business in there closed. And I took everything I had learned from all of the work that I had done looking at the, uh, the bigger space. And, and it was pretty easy to apply that to the, the smaller space. And uh, luckily I, ha I had a partner, too. So um, I had Marty. Marty's my business partner, Marty Watson. And uh, Marty and I met um, doing live photography, live music photography. Um, so he's a photographer as well. He's a photographer as well. He had moved from San Diego with his wife, Heather, and he um, did live music photography in San Diego. And so I started running into him at shows and got to know him and and at some point brought up the the fact that I was – kind of pursuing the idea of opening a venue. And he said, oh, I'd love to look over your business plan sometime. And, you know, you can use me as a sounding board. And he looked over my business plan and, and said, actually, do you need a partner? And um, we uh, we were, so we I had a I had help um, to, uh, to open up the shakedown. Had he opened businesses before? Or was he involved in the bar scene or anything? No, he hadn't either. So he he also just entered into this as a fan and a um, as an experienced customer. So, but we both had have, have financial backgrounds that helped, and you know he's great at reading contracts. I'm great at reading financial statements, um, and so we had some of that professional experience also that that helped us with the business. Do you remember uh, what you thought owning 
a music venue would be like and how that compares to what it is actually like? Yeah. Um, I think it's actually ended up being more fun than I thought it would be, which is interesting. You know what? I, I'm probably only saying that now because I'm eight years into it. <laughs> uh, I might have answered this differently at three years in. At that point, I might have said it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. It's I don't know. Maybe it's kind of like giving birth. They say that you know you you forget how hard it is, so then you want to eventually do it again. <laughs> it's like a biological you know input into your brain. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I think I expected it to be less fun by this point, but I still love my job a lot. It's changed. I'm there a lot less than I used to be, but um, like I don't go to every show now. I used to. First was, couple of years, it was every single show. But was that were you, is that because you were like working behind the bar, or like like you were one of the actual like staff members on staff during every show? Yes. Yeah, and it, you know, at first it was every show was really exciting because it was, you know, it was still also new. Every show was really exciting, and I wanted to see every band that played and. Um, I was there behind, you know, behind the bar for a lot of it because that was the only way that I could get any income from it for many years. Um, and that got to be, there's some burnout, you know, it's kind of like if you work at an ice cream store, you don't want to eat ice cream every day after a while. And so now I kind of have to, I try to be really, um, selective with the time that I spend there so that it so that I don't lose that that special feeling of um, seeing bands and being at shows and um, and all of that. But um, I think it's still yeah, it's it's still I'm happily surprised that owning a venue is still really fun, and I wouldn't change it for the world. It's time for me to jump in here and ask for your support. As I said at the top of the show, Andy and I started this podcast in an effort to cover our music community as widely as possible so that you could hear more than just music from your favorite local players, and so that we could explore the lives of all of the people, not just musicians, who make our incredible music scene what it is. We believe that in doing this, our community will become even more encouraging of those who put creativity at the forefront of their lives. We hope that by giving voice to those folks who are working so hard to build lives in and around the arts, there will be a shared sense of purpose, a deeper empathy for the struggle that is inherent in committing oneself to the pursuit of an artistic life, and that the disparate corners of our creative community will feel unified in knowing that they are not alone in their ambition. If you enjoy the show and you want to keep hearing from the incredible people who make Bellingham such a richly creative community, please consider supporting in whatever way you are able. You can go to our website, littlecitybigsound.com, and click on the Support the Show page. There you'll find links to make a one-time donation, sign up to become a sponsor, or set up a continuing contribution via our Patreon page. And to those who have already supported the show, thank you so much. I mean it when I say every little bit helps. Okay, back to my conversation with Holly. It's funny that you talk about um, sort of the amnesia of the pain of like starting the business, you know, like having a child or like giving a birth or something. Um, you and Marty opened a second business, right? You... You now have the space next door, which is a um, the racket, which is like a pinball bar, sort of sidebar. Mm-hmm. Is that did, was it? Just had it been long enough since you had started the last business that you thought, like, you know, it sounds fun. I want to start a bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, technically, it is part of the shakedown. It's the same business. Okay, it's an expansion, um, but it is. I mean, it's pretty much just like opening 
another business, or it was pretty much like opening another business. But that was – Marty and I really enjoy opening businesses, it turns out. I think that's – we're really motivated by that, by creating something. And so there is – you know, we're already getting the itch to do it again. <laughs> you know, we talked about what we could do next. So that's – you know, that's really fun for us, even though it is very stressful. Luckily, we've done it twice together, and we know we can – you know, if you open a business with somebody – you know, you can get through just about anything together. But not only was opening the racket a fun, you know, fun thing, kind of in a sense, in the in, in <laughs> what Marty and I think is fun, um, but it was a necessity. It was really important to the survival of the business. You know, it it and it wasn't it wasn't exactly when we wanted to do it either. We weren't quite ready. We knew we needed to expand, um, but we didn't. We weren't ready for it yet, so we just had to make it work. But the racket has been expanding the business to include the racket has been great for ensuring that the business survives, that the venue survives. So, you know, a music venue is a really tough business to make thrive. And we we, we were doing it. We did it for five years before we expanded. It's just, it's difficult to take a venue from barely hanging in there to to thriving, I guess. Uh, just overhead, there are lots, lots of factors working against you when you've got a music venue. So, but a regular bar turns out really easy to make it profitable. So. Is the racket what, you said you guys had talked about that expansion as a potential, uh, is the racket like what specifically what you had in mind? Like I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you yeah. just decided like pinball. Cool. Like are you and Marty like super hardcore pinball players? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Marty's wife actually, when we opened the shakedown, um, soon after we opened the shakedown, she uh, decided to buy a pinball machine cause she's great at fixing things. She's, uh, she's very handy and smart. And so she bought a pinball machine to see if, if she could learn how to fix it. And she was great at it. Um, found other people in town that, that also liked doing the same thing, um, started acquiring more pinball machines. And so she and uh, her friend Colin created the, the Bellingham Pinball Collective, and they kind of acquire and fix and place pinball machines all around town. So when that kind of was a, a bonus to uh, adding a, a, a side space to the venue, um, the originally the intention of the racket uh, space was kind of modeled after a lot of the successful music venues that I'd experienced. Um, so places like Numos, the Crocodile, they have sidebars. Numos has Moes, and Crocodile has uh, um, the back bar. Showbox has the green room. Oh, so you're talking about like the bar that is, uh, it's sistered with the, the with the music venue, but you don't like you don't have to pay a cover to get into the yeah. that sidebar and exactly and go have a conversation or something. Yeah, so a lot of times the sidebar will be open even if the venue is not open. It's a place where people can go hang out before and after or in between um, shows. You know, it's like well, there's this. This seems like it's a it's a trend. Um, maybe this is what we need to really finally be comfortable financially as a, as a venue is we need this other kind of diversified revenue source. And, you know, being a showgoer, I know what it feels like when you aren't really into the second band and you just need to go have a seat for a while, or you're having a really great conversation with somebody and the band starts and you want to continue that conversation you know, it's good to have a place to kind of get away. And that's that was really the primary reason why we wanted to open the racket is just a place people could get away. It's not as loud. Um, they still stay there. Um, they don't have to leave. Maybe they're friends. You know, if you come with a group of friends, half of them go to one side, half of them go to the other. But you still are going to a place with your friends. If Marty was here, he would also say that it, it's a bar that affords you the time to pour a proper pint of Guinness as well. That is true. <laughs> Marty loves the Guinness. Uh, so the racket feels like it's fairly self-explanatory. It's a pinball bar. Um, the name, the shakedown, what does that mean? 
Um, it's not intended to mean anything. <laughs> when we were trying to come up for a na- with a name for the venue, um, my friend Michelle Schutte, who had a large hand in helping to open the shakedown, uh, she is where a lot of our knowledge came from about things like bottles of booze and and how to serve them. I feel like Michelle is known in the industry as like the bar whisperer or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. She knows a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff. Um, so, but she, she and I were going over names. Coming up with, I mean, anybody who's named a band knows like it's, can be torturous. So, uh, same thing with a business. Um, we were trying to come up with names and I think it had been three months and lots of lists of names and nothing was perfect and I was so tired of names and I got to a point where I was like you know what the next thing that we come up with that's the name I don't care what it is and she sent me a text soon after that and said I was listening to a radio show while I was sitting in the tub and um what about the shakedown and I was like oh that's 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 great I'm glad that was the next name because it's a good one. Um, And I I think it was in reference to mob activity, something like that. You know, it was just a good sounding word, looked good in print. There weren't any other shakedowns that we knew of yet. Um, Yeah, so that name stuck. There There was a bar in San Diego that opened about two months before we did called the shakedown, though. <laughs> oh, <no>. So <laughs> they're closed now. So okay, we we cool. outlasted them. We get to keep it. But um yeah, and then the name the racket kind of along the same lines. Um it's just a nice sounding word. Plus the idea of pinball making racket and also the kind of the mob reference. Pinball was illegal. Um and so the mafia was involved in pinball. Through, at points throughout history, which is kind of interesting. Um, the connection between the words shakedown and racket made a lot of sense. And then, coming to find out, a friend of ours who uh, works, I think, with the Historical Society found a picture of a business in Bellingham called The Racket from the early 1900s. It was a dry goods store. I think it was located where the Pickford is now. So we actually took that picture, and there was a little bit of logo that you could see on the window in the picture, and we took that, and that influenced our logo for the racket. That's so cool. Super cool. It was kind of one of those, like, all signs just led to yes in in lots of different ways. So it feels like from booking shows to, you know, picking which IPA you're going to have on tap, the success of your business uh, relies on sort of your your knowledge of what people want. How many of those decisions are like actually you trying to figure out the thing that there is a market demand for versus the thing where it's like, well, I just really like that band or that type of beer or whatever. Like, like how, how do you split the um, trying to make people happy and like keep this uh, sustainable business model with trusting your, your instinct or your judgment? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, or I should say your taste, what what you really love. Yeah, I think it's important to, to both me and Marty that this is, a, you know, an entity that we're proud of, as as well as that we can pay our bills. So, <laughs> I mean, there's there's there is that balance, um, and and there is the balance of our tastes influencing our decisions versus um, what people want. Because ultimately what's most important is that we are providing a product that people want. We don't exist if we don't do that. We try to influence using our own tastes in a way that people will trust what we have to offer, too. Uh, So, you know, we have a style. We try to stick with that style as much as possible. Um, What is that style? I think that we, I think that our taste ultimately speaks to a segment of, of music fans that fits nicely between what other venues in town have to offer. For example, I think we're particularly good at the heavier sides of rock, um, metal, 
but that's not, we're not limited to that, of course. We know a lot about heavier music. And so, um, you know, the space is a little bit more geared towards heavier music. Um, what is that? Is that like an aesthetic choice? Is that like a layout design? Is that like a, you know, the bartenders look like they work at a rock venue? Like, what does it mean to like yeah. say that the venue is suited for sort of subgenres or maybe even communities? Mm-hmm. I think I think all of those things play a factor um, to a point. You know, I think you know our. Our staff is really used to that kind of music and knows what to expect from crowds, knows what to expect from musicians. Um, You know, when things get rowdy, it's not a frightening thing. It's a normal thing. You know, we're used to having to clean up a whole bunch of beer on the ground or deal with a mosh pit. You know, our staff is also familiar with a lot of the musicians that play that sort of music. So just interacting with those people is a little more familiar. At the risk of sounding like my grandfather, <laughs> do you feel like uh, inviting hard rock music and musicians and the people that listen to that music into the room invites like anger or ego or chaos in a way? Chaos, yes, but controlled chaos. What we have found, what I have found eight, in eight years of doing this is that some of the most aggressive music can actually attract the most polite people, which is really interesting. Some of the people that I've had the most problems with in the venue, either musicians or audience members, have actually been for some pretty darn calm indie shows. Hmm. <laughs> so I've, I've kind of often wondered if that more aggressive music is almost a meditative outlet for people and that, that they just end up being more mellow. Yeah, what does uh, your, so, your sociology <laughs> training tell you about that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, yeah, I mean, yeah, people in some of the, the most just gnarly, dark, aggressive bands have been the most wonderful people to interact with. So I don't know. There's There must be some kind of a study about that. I don't know. But um, when it comes to things like aggressive music and mosh pits and people that are really high energy, um, they're doing it in a space where they know it's allowed and are also respectful of the space. Like I said, that chaos is often really controlled, and it's also um, maintained with respect by the people in the room. So usually if there's a problem, it's squashed pretty quickly by the people who are just near the problem. Um, we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of issues with people being violent or um, out of control in a way that's not appropriate. Interestingly, so. So the uh, building that the shakedown is in, there are apartment apartments above the venue, right? Yes. How does that work? Um, so, and this was a concern before we signed the papers for the lease. Um, the The property managers put in something like $20,000 worth of soundproofing on the ceiling before we moved in, which helped, I'm sure, for those apartments upstairs. But that's not going to take care of the problem completely, of course. The um, property managers also make it very clear to anybody renting upstairs that they are moving in over a live music venue. So it's going to be noisy. A lot of the people that we've talked to that live up there, that have lived up there over the years, they have jobs where they work super late anyway. So it's not a problem if we're allowed until two o'clock in the morning. But also the city of Bellingham passed a revision to the sound ordinance right before we signed our lease in 2011. And that was huge for us. So the city designated an entertainment district. And within this entertainment district, there is a essentially an understanding that it's going to be noisy because there's live music in the entertainment district and that the city wants there to be live music because it contributes to the vitality of our downtown. And Terry Borneman was 
really instrumental in in getting that passed. And there was uh, a group of concerned citizens as well that that moved that along. Uh, Cat C and Sam Top are the two names that I can think of off the top of my head right now who are involved with that. Um, so that was a huge deal. That was really important to our city because before that, there was essentially one guy that was calling in like 90% of all the noise complaints downtown. And it put a big hamper on music downtown. But um, essentially what this the city um, still, the police department does still respond to noise complaints, but essentially if somebody calls one in, the response is, well, you live in the entertainment district and there is a expected amount of noise that you're you're going to be dealing with if you live within this area. Wow. The variety of things you have to deal with as a venue owner. Yeah. Shout out to Councilman Borneman. Hey. <laughs> Prior to the shakedown, the space that uh, it currently occupies housed um, the factory for several years, and then the Callaloo, Back Porch Alley, Plan B. Um, the last couple of venues were really only there for like a year or so. Uh, what do you think you and Marty had um lined out or have, what do you think you've done differently that allow, has allowed this space to succeed the way it has? Mm-hmm. Well, I can't, I can't speak with a lot of knowledge about why the other businesses um, didn't last very long. Um, I can only guess, but I can say, I think that the things that have helped us be successful are first of all, having a huge number of people right up front that helped us. Um, with their knowledge in particular, uh, that was that was extremely valuable. You know, and both Marty and I were very willing to listen to what other people had to say and the, the advice other people were willing to give. That was that that set us off on the right foot to begin with. Other than that, I think we are both very hands-on owners. We're there all the time. We you know we like we like being there and we like. Um, working in the space, we're pretty attentive to the business. You know, I I do the books and I look at our numbers every single day. So um, there's a lot of oversight there, which is especially important when you're working in a situation where um, you know every penny counts <laughs> uh, when you're starting a business. The first couple of years of, of having a business, and we while well, we had a lot of fun the first couple of years. Of, of running the business, we didn't treat it like it was a playhouse. It was a business first because it was more important that it succeeded than that we had fun. Of course, we wanted to have fun too, but ultimately we started it so that it would continue to exist for a long time. And yeah, I think, and both of us, I think are just very constantly very motivated to always improve so neither of us are ever satisfied um, with the way things are because everything can always be just a little bit better. Can you give me an example of something that you've done in that regard? Uh, we recently um, upgraded all of our equipment in the shakedown and redid the bar top, um, which is something I wanted to do for like eight years. <laughs> um, we finally did that uh, to improve the space. And... Yeah, and that can also be behind the scenes improving, um, improving procedures, or um, improving the way booking's done. Um, sometimes that means taking something off of my plate and giving it to somebody else and um, paying them to do a better job. Uh, there's always something that can be improved, and so I think that's that's also one big reason we've been successful. What's it been like for you um, learning to be a boss? Like, you know, mm. you start this thing and then all of a sudden it's like you you have employees and you've got to both, uh, you know, fi- figure out how to manage and all of the positive and negative things that having employees bring to a business. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that I would before we started, but I really like being a boss, turns out. And I had never been the boss or managed anybody before 
opening the shakedown. So I went from zero to 20. And I think I really like seeing people succeed and helping them do that. And relationships with employees can be really rewarding. Um, And again, you know, just like everything with the space can be improved as a boss, there's always room for improvement too. So I kind of, I manage with that in mind as well, is that I'm not the perfect boss. Um, And I, I've had employees that help me recognize things within my own personality that that can be challenging for somebody who's an employee. Um, The way I I communicate in a really direct and kind of cold way um, for a lot of people without intending to necessarily. So that's uh, employees who have been kind enough to point that out to me have really helped me improve my communications with people. You know, learning how to use exclamation points and smiley faces just a little bit more, that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, I think if you, I think I've, I've also learned that trusting your employees to do the right thing or make good decisions, um, Sometimes means that they're going to make the wrong decision, but letting them make the wrong decision is so much more valuable than stopping them from making the wrong decision, depending on the gravity of the wrong decision. But but sometimes it's it's really important to let people make their own mistakes um, and help them learn from them. I feel like it goes without saying that the music community is a very uh, male-dominated space. And I'm wondering what your experience has been as a woman who's in a position of of relative power, you know, certainly as a venue owner, but also as a musician, you know, on stage. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think both as a venue owner and as a musician, um, I really appreciate that I can be um, – perhaps a role model for other people who would imagine themselves doing something similar. Um, because I know that as a musician in my early 20s, it wasn't really until I saw other women on stage playing, playing heavy music in particular, um, that I could see myself doing it and I got excited about it. So the idea of somebody else seeing me in that position and thinking that they could do it um, is pretty important to me. Can you explain what BellinghamBands.com is? Yeah. So BellinghamBands.com started because, um, first of all, it was really hard to keep track of all of the bands starting and stopping. And, you know, it was usually the, the bands for booking that we would think of were just the bands that were kind of in our face and um, playing shows a lot already. And so having a database where bands could kind of take care of making sure the information was there on their own, uh, I thought would be really cool. It's like I should be able to create something where people can do this on their own, do their own research. Um, I'll start it and put the work in on the front end, and then hopefully that will help a lot of people um, to find out about bands in Bellingham. And yeah, I think we have like 250 bands listed on there. I don't know how many of them are still active. Um, bands can submit to on the form saying that a, a, ba- a band is inactive or, or disbanded. But yeah, it's been copied. Uh, Clyde in Seattle made a Seattle version. Uh, I haven't checked in on that to see how it's doing. But it would be awesome if every city in the country had a a database where a touring band can just look up and find bands that are similar and reach out to them on their own. And I think it's a really great networking tool would make touring a lot easier. Totally. Yeah. I was going to ask you if there are, um, things that you think like we as a music community need to do, uh, to grow and change, but it sounds like you're willing to just take all of those things. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Um, I think I'm getting to that point in my life where I just, I want to have the good ideas, encourage other people to do them and watch them happen. Not even have not even have any credit taken for those things happening. 
I think the best things that I see come out of the music community are when lots of people are doing little things that just contribute their share, I guess. You know, it, it doesn't have to be as, as big as starting a music venue. It can be starting a podcast <laughs> or taking photographs or doing graphic design or, you know, um, starting a DIY space, throwing house shows. All of, all of that does a little bit to help everything to be just a little bit better. What do you see as uh, sort of your trajectory as a musician, as a venue owner, as a human being uh, for the next, I don't know, five or ten years? Mm. What do you want to see happen? Um, well, I think... I think over the next five to ten years, I probably will still be doing things that help the Bellingham music scene reach its potential. I think that there's still a lot, and there are so many seeds of great things that could be realized. Uh, I, I wrote it in my business plan for The Shakedown that I think that Bellingham could be a mini Austin I think that we have the capacity to be a music city and I can do little bits and pieces to help us move us to help move us in that direction. And that's really fun. That's a really fun concept. So in that sense, you know, all the little things that I'm already doing, I'll keep making the shakedown the best venue that I can and keep playing in bands that, that are not only fun for me, but represent the city and tour and, and, you know, produce music that reaches people, um, outside of Bellingham. I think that over the next five to 10 years, it's possible Marty and I will start one or two more businesses because we really enjoy that. It's fun. You know, like I said, I like being a boss. I like being a good boss. And I like knowing that people, <laughs> I like knowing that people that I want to have around have a good place to work. So, because I've seen what happens when people don't have a good boss. Um, mm. It's very unfortunate. I don't, I just want everybody to work for good people. <sighs> Maybe I will be involved in city government some point that's another way I can make fun things happen in town are you announcing your mayoral candidacy <laughs> for the next election um not no do we just get a scoop uh, Andy I think we got a scoop <laughs> <laughs> it might be may, mayor's maybe a little far off someday we'll see we'll see I might start with something smaller see how I like it yeah I don't know I think I'm just, I'm going to, I'll spend a lot of time making Bellingham cooler. It's what I like to do. Holly, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's been great. And thank you for all, uh, all that you have done and continue to do to make Bellingham a cool musical town. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's do this again in 10 years. You got it. All right, that's a wrap for this month's episode. Thanks again to Holly for giving us so much of her time. Uh, check out her band Dryland at drylandheavyband.com, where they'll have info on their soon-to-be-released EP that was just recorded. You can find the Shakedown's show calendar at shakedownbellingham.com. And while you're on the internet, surf on over to our website, littlecitybigsound.com where you can see some of Holly's amazing photography including those shots of the band Black Eyes and Neckties that she described in the interview this episode's interview was recorded by Andy Rick at Binary Studios thanks Bob our ad music is courtesy of Mystery Chi thanks Joel our theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick and our logo was designed by Andy Rick thanks for everything Andy Little City Big Sound is a proud member of the Bell Pod Network a collective of independent podcasts made right here in the city of subdued excitement. 
Next episode's guest will be MC, DJ, and hip-hop producer Mostafa. We'll leave you with an exclusive preview of Dryland's new EP, produced by Matt Bayless and featuring Holly Huffman on the bass. This track is entitled No Celestial Hope. Let's